What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. your eyes. It's half past midnight, and you're listening to the Ghost Story Pass. Welcome to the Ghost Story, guys. I'm Brennan Store. I'm Paul Bestel. And this is the show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun has set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 108. And we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about, but can never quite reach. How are you, my transient friend? <laughs> I'm good. I've learned a lot about hunting for new accommodation this week. Yeah, that, that sort of was sprung on you, was it yes. not? Uh, yes. Paul is going to be moving house here in the next couple of months, and he is not real happy about it. Yeah, it was, it was really nice to, uh, you know, I'd had a lovely day Monday. I'd been off work, and I'd... I'd had quite a productive day. I'd sawed lots of things up, been quite manly, built a fire pit, you know. <laughs> oh, done. no. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, in preparation of being able to sit outside with other people. And then we got told that, yeah, you, you, you need to look for somewhere else to leave because there's too much work needs doing. And basically, our house is a shithole. <laughs> right. And we've been misled since day one. I mean, to say the day we moved in, the floor wasn't down kind of gives you an idea of what's been happening for the last 18 Oh, years. gotcha. Okay. So yeah, they've said, oh, well, you know, there's no rush, whatever. So we're just going, yeah, fuck that. We're off. So we're just going to try and do <laughs> do what we can. And uh, fingers crossed that um, my next property will will come with a ghost. I'd, I'd, I'd like that. It's been a while since I've, I've lived in a haunted house. So I'm, I'm due one, I think. Well, be, be careful what you wish for. If I've learned anything from doing this show, Paul, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Well, what's the worst that could happen after the last 15 months, Christ? Well, I thought that the stories we had coming up about ghost children and weird shadow creatures was going to be the scariest thing that happened on this show. But apparently Paul's saying, what worse could happen <laughs> is actually the most frightening thing I'll hear today. After 2020, what, what could possibly go wrong? What else could there possibly be? I can think of about 12 things off the top of my head. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to not sleep tonight as I run through those scenarios individually at great length. Thank you, Paul. You know, you've got to remember after last year, despite the pandemic gone, going on, I decided to get myself admitted into hospital with a, with a life-threatening illness as well. So, you know, I'm ready for most things these days. When your middle name's Damien, you, you kind of get resilient. When that transport truck made solely of broken mirrors and ladders comes for you. You, you, you remember that. Well, for my part, I have been doing nothing so interesting as getting turfed out of my home. Although, you know, as I rent an apartment, it's always hanging over my head. So, you know, watch this space. Instead, I've been hanging out in graveyards. Mm. You know, because I figure at some point I'm going to be doing a lot of that. I may as well get comfy with it. Yeah. The reason we do that is because my wife, Nikki, she is really good at genealogy. Mm. Uh, and, and I know everyone with an Ancestry.com account says they're good at genealogy. Yes. 
that's not what I mean. Uh, you know, she is exceptionally good at it. She is a kind of researcher who understands that in order to find things, you have to go off internet. As, as we'll talk about later, you know, there's something you got to go out in the world. And mm. she actually managed to find uh, a great uncle. I think it's, I think great uncle is, is the relationship. It's mm. her grandfather's brother. Wow. Who fled the country in the eighties to go to South Africa, just hopped on a plane, gone. Of course, her grandparents are long gone. She can't ask any questions. Mm. This is, sorry, this must've been the sixties or seventies because her parent, her mom was very, very young when it happened. But either way, she had no, she didn't know the guy's name. She didn't know much of anything. And she managed using a combination of researchers on the ground in South Africa and a little bit of information she managed to sort of pry out of interviews with her family. Mm. She managed to find not only this guy, but his entire family. Wow. And actually had an opportunity to meet them when she was in South Africa a couple of years ago. But um, unfortunately, and, and I kind of wondered if this would happen. You know, I, I think the, the grandfather's brother, you know, the, the circumstances of his leaving were so bad. Mm. He couldn't get over the whole experience. You know, he couldn't, even though it was 20, 30, whatever, 40 years later, he couldn't move past it. Yeah. And so he actually declined to meet her. Oh. And then he passed on, I want to say about six months later. Mm. But well, well, that said, the, the, the advantage is that now the rest of his family feels much more comfortable in making those connections. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So anyways, they've gotten to know each other, which has been very nice. But the reason I mentioned, of course, is just to, to vouch for my wife's finding shit bona fides. <laughs> and so sometimes we'll end up in these graveyards for various reasons, doing genealogical research. Yes. And we hadn't done it for ages. You know, she was in school for two years. Yeah. And so her weekends were devoted entirely to that. And mm. that only finished late last year. And mm. since then, it's, it's been that thing where you kind of end up in a habit. Yes. You know, we don't make plans together on the weekend because weekend is school time. Now, of course, it, the sun is shining and it's kind of a bummer to be inside all weekend. So when I'm not working on the show, we've been going out doing things and we've, we've ended back up in graveyards. Mm. And haven't had any paranormal experiences. I'm sad. To, I'm, am I sad? Yeah, I'm sad to say. Yeah. But I will say, if you ever, ever start feeling your oats a little too much and thinking, man, I got life all figured out. I am a big deal. Go <laughs> hang out in a graveyard and that will, that will humble you nicely. Beautiful places, quiet, peaceful, and puts everything in perspective. Yeah. I mean, we've got a beautiful one around the corner from where we live, which was uh, Sheffield's General Cemetery. So it's got a real mixture of designs and styles and all kinds of things, um, as well as uh, an ill-fated attempt at bringing in crypts. Oh, really? Which didn't really take off. So we've got two tiers of 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 crypts in the area, but um, they've uh, they were quickly uh, passed over, and and the return to the tomb and the uh, normal grave replaced them. What about the crypt? Was putting people off? It, it just wasn't fashionable. Apparently, people didn't think it was very uh, very proper. Interesting. Yeah. It was Sheffield Cemetery for, for the great and the good. So I think they probably thought it was beneath them without wishing to sound like I'm making a pun. <laughs> I mean, that is very English. Yes. One must die in the most proper of ways. Of course. And now it's time to thank our patrons. This one's for the patrons. Patrons, you are the smoky to our bandit. And we could not do this without you. 
If you listen to the end of the show, you'll hear about all the goodies our patrons get. But for now, we'd just like to thank our latest patrons. They are... Nikki Rosenthal. Deborah Warr. Cassie Kempf. Thank you so, so much from the bottom of our terrible, terrible hearts. You guys are the best. We could not make the show. We literally could not make the show without you (laughs) at this point. And we can never tell you how much we appreciate your support. And again, if you want to find out how to become a patron and all the cool stuff you get along the way, listen to the end of the show and we'll tell you how. Well, as I mentioned on this episode, we have six fantastic stories, including two listener stories, one from Texas, one from the great state of Wisconsin. And so we're going to take a quick break and be right back. Welcome back. As I said before the break, on this episode, we're going to be telling stories of spectral children, which are, I mean, children are frightening enough as it is. So spectral children just seems like an unfair advantage, mm. but that, that's another matter entirely. And, and you know, it's funny because someone, sometimes people say, Brent, don't you like kids? I'm like, no, I really love kids. I, I just, I like when other people have them. That's, that's sort of my, my, my take on that. Yes. I always used to have that excuse of, of you know, being an uncle. But uh, obviously, that doesn't apply anymore. That sounds chilling. <laughs> you are still an uncle, right? Well, yeah, oh, yes, I'm still still an uncle, yes. But uh, obviously, now I'm I'm officially a father, aren't I? So, of course, yes, yes. I just want to. That just sounded very, very like. Well, I was an uncle. <laughs> Let there be no misunderstandings. He is still also an uncle. Yes, yes. Since since we went to stay at the creepy hotel. <laughs> That's right. Since the incident. <laughs> in the mansion on the hill. Since we visited that pizza parlor. <laughs> Anyways, before we get going though, of course, we have letters from our listeners. And I, I do enjoy reading these. And the first one I'm going to read is actually a surprise even to Paul because it, it is not in the script because I did not uh, think to copy it over from Instagram where it was sent. Okay. So our very first message comes from Kathy. She says, hi, Brennan, new listener here. I found out about your podcast from the Haunted AF podcast. Have to say, love your show. Thank you very much, Kathy. And yeah, if you haven't heard my spot on the Haunted AF podcast, make sure to check it out. I had a really good time. Kathy goes on to say, I just listened to your latest episode, The Devil in the Back Seat. You mentioned that you're having a terrible time with your allergies and having bad dreams slash nightmares. As a fellow allergy sufferer, my heart goes out to you. I thought I would forward on this tip to you. Does your allergy medication contain a decongestant, like pseudoephedrine? If it does, you may want to switch to something that doesn't. That decongestant gives me crazy dreams and nightmares, so bad sometimes that I even sleepwalk slash talk. It's not so great for anxiety either. Anywho, just a thought. If you have to take one with a decongestant because you just can't stand being a mouth breather anymore, I mean, I've always been a mouth breather, Kathy, (laughs) then I'd recommend doing it before noon. It totally causes wicked bad dreams. Cheers, Kathy. And Kathy, that's hugely helpful. Thank you very much. Uh, because yeah, the, the, the meds I take do have pseudoephedrine in them. That is really helpful information. So this contribution is from Lindsay. I just listened to the most recent episode and wanted to drop you a note to say, please, Brennan, do the X-Files rewatch podcast. It would be such a blast. And I would absolutely support a Patreon to make that happen. Also, just wanted to say, 
that I'm catching up on the last few months' shows. Life got unexpectedly busy for a while. And I really enjoy Paul as the new co-host. The show is as fun as ever, and you've got great chemistry. Paul brings a great perspective and lots of knowledge. I'll have to check out his show next. Keep being great, and please... See, I had to emphasise the please there. Seriously consider the X-Files podcast. So thank you, Lindsay. And especially because I got to make Paul say something nice about himself. <laughs> yeah, I'm reading that. I'm thinking, hang on, is, is, am I really Lindsay? <laughs> no, that's very kind. And it's true. I, I agree a thousand percent, Lindsay. He is all those things. I'm very lucky. No, thank you very much. Yeah, no, it's, it, it is true. And as for the X-Files rewatch podcast, that was a joke I made on episode, I think it might have been episode 106. Because I'm Nick and I are watching our way through the X Files, mm. and um, frankly, I'm actually considering making it a patron goal. You know, like uh, if we hit X number of patrons or X number of of monthly amount, because you know, as Paul knows, he actually produces a weekly podcast and knows how much work goes into that. <laughs> yeah, I'm all right. Carry on. <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, I I would be definitely be open to that. Like doing a little 15, 20 minute a week recap of, of watching my way through the X-Files. Of mm. course, I say that. Paul knows that when I say I'm going to do something, it's going to be like, oh, little thing, 15, 20 minutes. You know, it's going to turn into an hour-long show with interviews and, you know, sound effects. And Here's Steve, who went to school with David Duchovny. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Here's the audio I took from David Duchovny's hotel window. If you listen closely, you can kind of hear him snoring. <laughs> course you know for our patrons we do this movie night uh every month we watch uh we watch a movie we kind of talk about the film do a little commentary take questions and it's it's a ton of fun i, I love doing it and of course you know it started off doing when we started i, I started doing a little pre-show <laughs> and it was just nine minutes of kind of related clips and you know it, it, was, it was a little bit of work it wasn't too bad but then for march we did the film legend of the seven golden vampires <laughs> And I got this because it, it had hopping vampires, which are mm. sort of the, the Chinese legend of, you know, the Jiangxi. I got in my head, hippity hop hop. Oh, there's that Sugar Hill Gang song, Rapper's Delight. So I edited a music video featuring only vampires to Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight. That song is seven and a half minutes long. Mm. I did not think about this, dear listeners. I did not think about the amount of time this would take. And uh, so anyways, yeah, it, 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 this little quick thing has turned into Brent spends about mm, 20 hours putting this thing together over the course of the course of about a week and a half. But yes, so uh, keep an eye on keep an eye on the Patreon over the next couple of weeks. I will come up with a, a figure that I think is a, a reasonable thing to shoot for. And uh, possibly we will have a, a weekly X-Files recap. This next message comes from Bob and uh, we've shared a number of Bob stories on the show. Bob says, after working a night shift at the rice mill, one of our longtime farmhands was walking to his house at around 4 a.m. Just as he got to the tree-lined part of the road near his home, he noticed a child standing in the middle of the road. Reflexively, he scooped up the child, thinking it must have gotten up and walked out of his neighbor's house. For, you see, some of the houses have their doors open to let the breeze through. After about a dozen steps, he walked under the lone street lamp, glancing at the child to try to identify which neighbor it belonged to. And to his horror, the child had black eyes with a cold stare. He quickly dropped the thing and ran for his house, rousing his neighbors. They formed a search party but did not find the black-eyed child. Shaken, the man took a pay cut and refused to work the night shift. I don't blame him. Nope, me either, Bob. Me either. Uh, black-eyed kids scare the hell out of me. Mm. 
And, you know, a long time ago, I was, when I was first got into the paranormal and found stories of black eyed kids, it was uh, the original Brian Bethel article. I found some guy in the comment section who claimed he had figured out what they were. He's like, I have figured these things out. You know, if anyone wants to know, get in touch. And I did. And of course Mm -hmm. I never heard back, (laughs) but you know, the the gist of his thinking seemed to be, it was like some kind of almost like a, like, um, cause he explained a little bit in the post. And of course I wanted to know more, but he thought it was almost like a, a, a human type animal that we have over the years misidentified as vampires. Right. But, uh, yeah. And I mean, that's again, that's as far as I ever got because he never responded to my email, but I, I am fascinated by that. And, and actually there's one story in David Weatherly's Strange Intruders, mm. which also really got to me. And it's the one where the guy was in Hawaii and he was invited over to dinner by this couple. And at one point during dinner, their eyes went black and their mouths dropped open. Mm. It, like, and this happened in sync. Yeah. And then after about a minute, they went back to normal as if nothing had happened. Mm. And now that's either the worst slash best practical joke anyone's ever played on anyone. Or uh, one of those terrifying little examples of the, of the things hidden away in the, the far corners of the world that most of us wouldn't believe because it just doesn't fit anything we know. Mm. But if it happened, then it, it, it just raises all kinds of questions. Have you heard anything like that? When you were mentioning that, there's a, there's a similar story in Linda Godfrey's Monsters Among Us. Um, oh, which really? features somebody transforming into a werewolf during a church service. Like in full view of people? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Like proper transforming into, into this canine creature and doing all the, the typical werewolf transformation noises and bones snapping and things like that. And people hush it up and, and say, oh, no, no, it's not what you think it is. And that the witnesses are adamant that this actually happened. It's a very, very peculiar encounter. So there were multiple witnesses to this? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Do you recall whereabouts it was? It's been a while since I've read it, to be honest. Um, Fair enough. And it's definitely in the States. Oh, okay. Okay. To be honest, I haven't read anything by Linda and that's, she's why I think one, it sounds like based on what you've told me and what I've heard from her, you know, elsewhere is that she's one of the better modern researchers working. Mm. Yeah, definitely. You know, you got guys like David Weatherly. They're actually out there doing the thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're not just collecting stories online or things like this. You know, they're actually going to places. And a lot of the Bigfoot guys you've spoken to on Mysteries and Monsters, I mean, they're the same way. And I got a lot of respect for that. Yeah. You know, even though I kind of go back and forth on the the truth of Bigfoot, don't hit me. (laughs) I've got a lot of respect for researchers who are out there actually doing the work. Mm. Because I think that's the only way we actually arrive at truth. Yeah. I don't think we can draw many conclusions just from research, you know, sort of from data collection online or, or over the phone. I mean, I think it helps. I think it definitely has its place because, I mean, that's, mm. that's what we do. But I think to really arrive at truth, I think you kind of have to, or someone has to be on the ground. I was going to say, because um, Ruth Roper Wild, who has written five books about the paranormal here in the UK, is a good example of that because a lot of the stories she sort of dives into, some of them there is no basis in truth. They're either urban myths that have just carried on, like the addresses are wrong. But when she's finding these stories online, she'll actually go to the locations and look. And sometimes the streets don't exist. The pub never existed. 
The street layout isn't the same. The crossroad isn't where people have said it is. There's no way this incident could have happened where people have claimed it could have happened because the area is nothing like that. So you need people like that out, like you say, out there actually investigating rather than just taking as gospel whatever they read online because we all know how bad that ends up. That's one of the reasons I haven't done another book since Strange was because with Strange, I could do that. I mean, most of the stories in Strange, I, I went to the places. I talked to the people in person. And obviously, I'm now I'm working on who you're going to call the, the book of first responder stories, and that's not possible right now. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of trying to get used to collecting data that way because I'm, I'm used to the more hands-on method. But mm. yeah, it's, it's so much more tangible. And I think the, the final product, even though you know I read Strange now because it's been five years and I fucking cringe, because mm. um, it's so dry. But still, I, I feel like the, the stories have a different, more tangible quality because you're actually going out there. But um, anyways, I, I, we, should, we should move on because there, there are more letters. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Next is our patron, Cindine. For context, I'd say I'm agnostic, but curious. My thoughts on ghosty business is best described as fluid, I suppose. I don't know shit about fuck as far as what's real or not. And I'm okay with that for the most part. Anyway, I share my oldish house. I share my oldish... Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Paul versus words is my favorite time of day. Aish. All right, put my teeth back in. Anyway, I share my oldish house with my best friend and three cats, one of whom loves food more than dear sweet life itself. So we have to feed them separately, or chonky little Betty will gleefully hoover up all the delicious... <laughs> laughing at that cat's name, sorry. <laughs> so we have to feed them separately, or chonky little Betty will gleefully hoover up all the delicious crunchy bits, leaving none for Baker and Molly. We forgot to put the food up fairly frequently, despite being fairly sure we had done it. Baker is a grazer, so we keep her bowl on a high shelf in the sunroom, inaccessible to cats, and put it down for her when she's peckish. If we forget to pick up the bowl off the floor afterwards, little Betty will make short work of Baker's food every single time. My housemate's girlfriend Jen was over and I watched her pick up Baker's full bowl and stash it on the shelf after Baker finished nibbling. I thanked her for doing that and went back to doom scrolling on my phone. This was the mid-Trump era. Gross. Gross is right. And other words we could use. Yeah. A few yeah. minutes later, little Betty comes trotting out of the sunroom with a triumphant look on her fat, furry face. <laughs> uh, we've all been there. <laughs> I'm regularly there, little Betty. So, yeah. <laughs> sure enough, the ceramic full bowl was on the floor, completely empty. None of us had moved from our chairs in the living room in the few minutes after I saw Jen stash the cat food. Apparently something in my house is a sucker for a chubby cat, just like me. I love that. This next message is from Victoria. This email actually arrived in June of last year and just unfortunately fell through the cracks. I don't know whether or not Victoria is still listening to the show, but if so, thank, thank you for sharing this. Dear gentlemen, on one of your latest podcasts, there, were dis there was a discussion about how the human body has the ability to protect itself from things a person cannot handle. I am certain you are correct because of what I will describe below. I worked with a gentleman who was a captain in the United States Army and assigned to one of the quick reaction forces at Fort Bragg, North Carolina in the 1970s. He was dispatched with a second captain, an army physician assistant, to Guyana 
because the U.S. State Department had told the army that there were a number of Americans in a religious settlement in Guyana that wanted to be repatriated to America. Of course, now most people will understand that these captains were being dispatched to the infamous Jonestown Massacre, but at that time, in November 1978, neither captain had any clue as to what was in store for them. They thought they were just going to help organize a few hundred ambulatory adults onto a plane, and that these adults would only require some motion sickness medicine before flying out of Guyana. So these two captains arrived at the airfield near Jonestown where they were met by Guyanese soldiers. None of the Guyanese soldiers spoke English, and none of the U.S. officers spoke Creole. So there was literally no way for these two groups to talk with each other. This is way before Google Translate. Eventually, the Americans were placed into a jeep and driven to Jonestown. My coworker said that when they first came upon the commune, he thought it was curious that everyone was laying down on the ground praying. He could not process what he was seeing, and his buddy suddenly yelled for him to check the prostrate people for pulses. It was after the captain had checked a couple of bodies for a pulse he came to realize what he was seeing. He said it was at that instant that his brain could finally process the horrible sight of a field full of death, that he was suddenly overwhelmed with a stench of over 900 bodies. He said that there was such a disconnect from what his brain was willing to process versus what his senses were clearly picking up that his body protected him from his own sense of smell. So I wanted to assure you too that you are correct. Your body does have the ability to shield itself from things it is unable to accept. And Victoria, thank you for sharing that. That is, that is incredible. I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously the story of Jonestown, which I'm, I'm sure, given the proliferation of true crime podcasts, everyone is by now familiar with. Mm. That is a, an incredible story. And, and it just goes to show you that, yeah, there are, there are things which our body, our, our subconscious will work to protect us against. And I don't think that just applies to, uh, you know, corporeal trauma. You know, I think we've said before, there are things, there are things in this world that just don't make sense. And I think that, yeah, I think that our bodies will do their best to keep us safe from them. Yeah. Jonestown is one of those things that I have a real fascination with, and I don't use that term lightly. Um, because I just find it such a monumentally awful story from start to finish. Oh, that sure. I, that, that it, sometimes it just, I can't, I can't comprehend what actually happened there because it is unlike anything we've ever seen in the modern era of cults, really, um, regardless of, of other things that have happened around the world. And still, I mean, what, 43 years on? It still astounds me that 909 people took their own lives because a madman told them to. It's a staggering lesson in the dangers of groupthink mm. and being in something and just surrounded by it. You know, I mean, and I actually think it's more relevant than ever considering the various echo chambers yeah. that people have siloed themselves into. You know, we, There are things in the news now, and, and we're obviously I'm not going to name them specifically because mm. it's just depressing, but there are things in the news now which millions of people are now on record believing, yep. which would have in the 1990s been a funny thing we sat around on the couch talking about, mm. you know, like, like I, I may have said this before, but I, when I was younger, I dated a girl whose parents firmly believed in the writings of David Icke. Mm. They genuinely believed that there were lizard people running the earth and that there was a great cataclysm coming. And it, it, I, it was so foreign to me, but then I ended up going to live with them for a little while 
on their mining claim up in Northern BC. And man, being out there, 80 kilometers from the nearest phone, 40 from the nearest neighbor who was an elderly neo-Nazi who literally flew a Nazi flag above his house. Even someone with a pretty resilient mind, when you're just in that environment, you start thinking, and that's after only two weeks, maybe I'm wrong. Mm. You know, these people believe this so hard because at nighttime there was no power. So at night you sit around a, a lamp at the table in the cabin and they would just read, we would play cards and they would read out loud from David Icke. And that's one of the reasons I, there there are other reasons as well, but that's one of the reasons I left. Hmm. You know, I was up there and, you know, I I was helping them run the machines and, you know, run the sluice box and pan for gold because they were convinced that there was literally gold in them Nar Hills. And to be fair, you know, they pulled out a few nuggets, you know, probably a couple thousand dollars worth of gold, Hmm. but you know, they had to move a lot of earth to get that far. But I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it because I felt still me and thinking this is ridiculous and this guy who's feeding me all this crap, he's a monster. And again, I I can't get into why, but he was a monster. And at the same time, the uh, the two people you're with, including your partner, are so under this person's sway that you start questioning yourself a little bit. And so I I left and I remember this guy saying to me, you know, he said, uh, oh, you couldn't hack it up here with no technology, eh, city boy? And I thought, that's not it, you gross motherfucker, but I can't tell you that until I'm out of the truck. Yeah. And even then, I can't really tell you that because someone I still care about is still up here with you. Mm. I mean, it was your stepfather, but still, you know? And so, yeah, it, it's the power of that is, is incredible. And so it, it, it doesn't shock me maybe the same way because I, I've sort of been a little bit in that situation. Just saying, you know, thankfully, obviously, it didn't get that far, but it's, it's still a, a, an awful, staggering loss. Yeah. I was talking to somebody the other day about Heaven's Gate and Marshall Applewhite and a friend of mine, the UFO researcher, Peter Robbins, mentioned that he'd actually met Applewhite at a UFO conference in the 90s. Oh, really? He was one of the strangest people he'd ever met. Really? Hmm. What was What was about him? Like, what was, what was it? Just his eyes. They were like a shark. Just right. this hypnotic gaze that clearly was able to overpower certain people, it would seem. Interesting. I mean, some people are just magnetic that way. And I I think that's really interesting. And uh, just before we go on to the stories, I think it's important to remember, always trust your instincts. Yep. Go with your gut. Yep. Because sometimes it's easy to think, oh, I want this. So I'll excuse these red flags. And uh, tell you folks, that's how I ended up on a mining claim in Northern BC with a wannabe cult leader. Don't be Brent. And now, on with the stories. The Eyes of Texas. This comes from our listener, Larry. My first experience is fixed in my memory like a short film in HD. My father was military, U.S. Army and I am the youngest of three kids. The five of us moved a lot when I was growing up, on average every two years. My mother's family is Texan, going back several generations, though I don't consider myself Texan. I was born in Germany and raised all over the damn place. We visited my grandmother, my mom's mother, who lived in Waco, Texas when we could. We called her Nanny. This was the early 1970s in Texas, and Nanny was a rigid Southerner of English, Scotch-Irish, white Protestant descent. 
Nanny lived in a huge, especially from a child's perspective, old three-story Victorian house that she had split up years earlier into about five different living spaces or apartments. You see, my grandfather had passed away seven years earlier, about the year I was born, and to earn an income, Nanny had basically converted her house into an old folks' home where she ran a hospice. You might think the house was scary, but it wasn't. Even though I knew people had died in many of the rooms, her house had a very warm, decrepit, grandmotherly feel. So in 1971, when I was eight years old, we were on one of our visits to Nanny. My dad was posted to Fort Carson in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and it was about a 12-hour car ride to Waco. We all piled into the Chevy station wagon early in the morning before light to make the trip in one day. Oh, God. On this particular visit to Nanny's house, I spent a lot of time exploring around on my own. Her house had an old garage or carriage house out back off an unpaved alley. The tin-roofed structure dated from the 1920s or 30s, was large, more decrepit than the main house, and about 100 yards in the back. There was also an old pecan grove at the back of the property. The garage had carriage-style doors that were never locked. Several times when I was in that garage, I'd encounter another little boy, about my age or maybe a year older. He was African-American, barefoot, dressed in tattered clothing and wearing a grass reed or straw hat. I saw him and spoke with him twice. Both times he was seated in about the same spot, on a ledge in one of the wooden stalls. I think they used to keep horses in there at one time. Eating something. Both times he asked if I wanted any of what he was eating. The second time I saw him is the most memorable, because he was sitting on the same ledge, with a basket in his lap full of pecans. I did not understand why this oddly dressed little boy was in my nanny's garage eating her pecans, and so on this second encounter I told him he should leave, as nanny was pretty possessive of her pecans. Just a year earlier she'd had a small feud with her neighbor who tried to collect them off her property. But the little boy just stared at me swinging his little legs as he ate. Being an eight-year-old tattletale, ah yes, I ran back to the house to tell nanny, and she came back to the garage with me to chase off the trespasser, but the little boy had vanished along with his basket of pecans. He left no signs he'd even been there, no pecan shells or basket. No one else but me had ever seen him. I never saw him again, though I did look for him during that week visit and subsequent nanny visits. I played with a few of the neighborhood kids my age, who were also African American, and had no idea who the oddly addressed little boy I met in nanny's garage was. I didn't think much of it until years later. This little boy was always barefoot wearing tattered clothes, almost like a character from Huck Finn. I never made this connection until later in grade school reading Mark Twain and seeing drawings of how folks dressed in those days. The fact that Nanny knew everyone in the neighborhood and had never spotted this kid herself has me thinking to this day that he may have been a ghost. It's the only way I can explain his look, the strange way he interacted with me, and the fact that no one else knew who or what I was talking about when I mentioned him. Nanny thought I'd made him up. My own mother knew I was her grounded little engineer that didn't make up imaginary friends, but we let it go. And thanks for sharing that, Larry. That is that is almost like a classic ghost story. Mm. The the mundaneness of it as well that gives it a bit of flavor in, in regards to what he was doing because he just sat there eating some nuts. If I had to think about it, I would say that people have probably had more paranormal experiences than they think. Mm. But... I'm willing to bet that so many of them are just so prosaic and uninteresting Yeah. that at the time they, they didn't even know what they were seeing. I mean, we did a story last year, I think, 
about a woman, it might even have been a listener story, I'm not sure, but it was about a woman who ran into an old school friend who she hadn't seen in years and he was really kind of bummed out and sad. And Hmm. she realized later that running into him may have saved her, again, it's all kind of hazy, last year's, a lot of last year's a blur, but running into him may have saved her from running into someone else who was much more dangerous. Mm. And she realized after the fact that this guy was dead at the time. Oh. It may even have been the result of self-harm. I can't remember, but, Mm. and and listeners, I'm I'm sure someone out there knows the story I'm talking about, but, um, yeah. And, but again, if she hadn't known that last fact, if she hadn't run into someone who had informed that, informed her of that, she would have just thought she'd run into an old school friend and, oh, hey, that, you know, the timing worked out really well. Mm. Even myself in 2019, I think it was, I walked past my, one of my neighbors, Dave was his name. Dave looked like shit and he was really miserable, but I thought, well, okay, you know, Dave's never been a happy guy. Mm. He's going about his day. We kind of did that thing. We were both pretending not to see each other. So kept moving on with my life. And I found out that no, Dave, when I saw Dave, he was dead. He had been dead for a while. He, he didn't even die in the building. He died in the hospital. He hadn't been living in the building at that point for several weeks. Mm. But again, if I hadn't found that out, I would have just thought, oh, you know, I just saw my neighbor and he looked like crap. Yeah. So, you know, I, I actually have this, this like pet theory and, um, listeners, this, this is, this is just crazy brand talking. I was thinking about traffic systems one day. I was sitting in traffic and I was looking at the light and I was thinking about how traffic systems are set up in such a way so as to, as best as possible, funnel traffic in a way to take advantage of dead spots. You know, like, like traffic is set up in a way to try and minimize strain on infrastructure. So, you know, like it's the lights kind of are set up in such a way so as to prevent traffic, you're trying to prevent or minimize traffic jams, things like this. Hmm. Electrical systems are the same way, right? Like you, if one area is under heavy load, they try and like disperse it to other areas. Yeah. Which are not currently being used as much to try and, you know, try and uh, take the load off, off sort of the one area. Hmm. And I kind of wonder if, if there is any truth to something like multiverse theory, if it works the same way, you know, so like say we're driving down the road and you see a car driving past you, you don't think anything about it. It's just a car driving past you the other way. But maybe for a moment, that is a guy from 1995 mm. passing through your space. You're passing through his because your parts of the server, and I, I don't believe in holographic world theory exactly. And I definitely don't believe in simulation theory. That's nonsense, but I'm using the language is is useful, but you know, like you're passing through each other's like kind of next to each other's track on in in this, in that part of the system, because it's like a low load area. And there was a, a, do you understand what I'm saying? It's it's kind of, yeah, you're both driving through the same place, but he's driving through that place 10 years ago or five years in the future. But there's enough similarity between the two and he's, because we drive most of the time, we're not really paying attention to what's going on around us anyways, except on a very basic level. And you both path through the same space, but you have no reason to acknowledge that something different is happening. Yeah. You know, and and this could be going on all around us, but we're just, there's no reason for us to see it. And of course I got no way to prove that. And it's, it's almost as harebrained as the guy you used to know back in Revelstoke who'd love to go around saying that babies were born with all the knowledge of the world and then forgot everything as they got older. You know, mm. it, it sounds great when you're stoned at a party, but you, you can never actually back it up with anything. <laughs> so I, I am aware of how, of how kooky and, and totally unprovable that is, but stories like Larry's yeah. do make me wonder. 
if again, we are more steeped in these things than we recognize, but because they are so mundane, we have no reason to question them. Yeah, exactly. Not all ghosts go, ooh. Yeah. And maybe sometimes we're the ghosts. Indeed. So deep thought for the day. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Curfew. Even though I've always tried to be someone who pays little attention to the paranormal, growing up in the Guyanese countryside made that tough. During my childhood, certain times of the year meant we had to finish our outside business by 5pm because our grandmother told us the roads belonged to creatures from other places. Some were spirits, she would say. Others were something else entirely. During those times, Whatever we were doing, Grandmother would call us home, and we would have to line up outside our house so she could count us off. One by one, we'd be sent inside for the rest of the evening. When I was twelve, I became cheeky and defiant, and who doesn't, deciding that this was all silliness that was meant only to control us. My genius plan was to sneak away after being counted so I could keep playing under the monkey apple tree in our yard. Everything was fine at first, and Grandmother didn't notice my absence right away, so I really thought I'd gotten away with something. But then I began to feel strange, like I wasn't alone there underneath the tree, but couldn't see who might be there. Suddenly, there was a scratching sound, like when we would use a knife to carve our initials onto bark, and I noticed what appeared to be scratches on the tree in front of me. I began to feel frightened and prepared to run, but heard a sound above me which stopped me in my tracks. It sounded like the creak of a rope. Against all my better judgment, I craned my head to look, and that was when I saw my first spirit. She was a young girl, my age or maybe a little older. She was wearing a blue blouse, had black hair, and her face was ruined, burned beyond recognition. I screamed and ran back to the house, once we were all inside, I told my grandmother what had happened, and she gave my father a stern look. I demanded to know who the girl was, and grandmother told me that years before father had bought the house, it had been a dancing club. It closed after the owner's daughter had been attacked by a customer when she told him to stop touching her, and the man had burned her, then hung her from the monkey apple tree. From then on, the girl would appear to me regularly. I wonder if having already made contact meant that being inside didn't stop her the way it did other things. Or maybe being inside was just a way to keep us out of their awareness altogether. I don't know. Regardless, the girl would appear in my dreams from time to time, but always made sure to tell me, even though her mouth never moved, that she meant me no harm. She only wanted to make sure someone else knew her story, and to feel less alone, even for only a minute. What a sad story. It really is. Mm. There's something just so, pardon the pun, haunting mm. about a spirit that just wants to be acknowledged. Yeah. You know, I, I, yeah. I mean, we talked before 
about this idea that there are some reasons, there are possibly reasons why some spirits are angry. You know, this idea that they are frozen in time. And so mm -hmm. they, to them, they are seeing a world move on without them. And that is a very difficult thing to do, especially when you feel like you can't move on. Yeah. And of course, you know, quite often they respond just with anger, but obviously in this case, there is just kind of a lingering sadness, you yeah. know, just a, a desire to be acknowledged and for their suffering to be known. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is a theory I've considered that what if ghosts are lonely? How would that feel? I mean, the very concept of life after death is perturbing enough without taking into consideration that perhaps whatever the entity is, has a realization of what it is and where it is and has no way of communicating that. There was a story I was once told and I can't, uh, sadly, I, I can't really get into it, but it, it was very much another example of that hmm. where someone seemed to realize something was wrong and something had, something fundamental had changed, hmm. but they couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. And again, I, I can't remember if this is something you and I talked about because I tend to have conversations like this, generally speaking. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Me and but, <laughs> <you> both. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But this idea that when we die, we lose a lot of the baggage mm. that is our personality. We, over time, become different people. Yeah. Not necessarily in a bad way, just, you know, we evolve past the person we were in life. Mm. And it, you know, in some ways, this kind of fucks up this idea we have of heaven because we think that, you know, when we die and we're going to go to this cloud place and we're going to meet all the people in our life and grandpa's going to be there. And mm. grandma's going to be there and they're going to be the people we knew in life. But there's no part of our world that is like that. Mm. You know, and, and that's why I, I've always, one of the many reasons I've had problems with the idea of heaven as stasis is that people are constantly evolving. Yeah. You know, I, I remember when I first started traveling in 2006, you know, I'd, I had a group of friends who I was so close to, so close, you know, the the kind of people who would just we'd go swimming together and then they'd come over to my house because yeah. you know, I, I lived in a house and then we'd all just fall asleep on the couch watching television together. You know, like that that kind of closeness that I think is really only possible at, at an early stage of your life. Yeah. But when I started traveling, I was only gone for a month and already I started to see that my absence had started to close over already. And mm. the longer I was away, the more those people kind of moved on and, and changed. The hole that I that I left in the dynamic eventually knit over and other people filled in parts of it and they became different people. And you think those are, of course, those are young people and that's kind of the nature of these things, but everything eventually finds a new normal, finds a new level. You know, like mm -hmm. when someone dies, I mean, you and I have both dealt with this many times in our life. Yeah. Someone dies, the pain is unimaginable. Mm -hmm. And you say to yourself, nothing's ever going to be the same again. Yeah. You know, like how can I live without this person? And- while it's true, nothing is ever the same again. Eventually, you you find a way to be, hmm. and so I think that one of the truly frightening things about death, if there is continuation of consciousness after it, which I, I genuinely hope there is, is that it it means you have to keep evolving. Yeah, and it means that the people you love may not be the same people when you finally catch up to them. Yeah. You know, I, like, I, I've had dreams of my grandparents. My own father is, uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we, I haven't spoken to him in, in more than 10 years. 
so my grandfather sort of filled that role in my life. And when I dream of him now, which is not very often, he's a different person. And, yeah. and I know, you know, the skeptics out there are going to say, well, that's a dream. And, and yes, it is. But I, I do believe, because I, I do this show, I believe that there is survival of consciousness past the point of physical death. And I believe you evolve. And I believe that the person he is now, he's not my grandfather. And yeah. it was a challenge, actually, to interact with him in dreams in the mm. first few years, because the longer this went on, the longer I would have these dreams, the more he became a little bit frustrated. Yeah. I could tell because I was still react like I was crying because there's my grandfather, you know, mm. and he was kind of like, yeah, I'm here and let's move on. You know, we only have a little yes. bit amount of time. We got to get through this. And yeah, over time, you know, I, I've come to this level now where the odd time I dream about him, we interact as equals. There's no longer that, that power imbalance. Mm. Um, and again, it could just be that, you know, I, I've evolved as a person, as hard as that may be to believe. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I think that, um, I think that what's happened is, you know, I finally managed to accept his spiritual development yeah. and interact with him in a way that acknowledges he's no longer the person I knew. Mm. What are your thoughts? Well, I think that occurs in all walks of life. And I know I've heard you mention before when you have friendships that, occur for brief periods of time, maybe a year, two years, three years, five years, whatever. And then they either finish for whatever reason or you move apart or, or things happen. And it's very odd sometimes when you take a trek back or perhaps you go home to somewhere you haven't been for a while or where you're from. And sometimes it it's very alien and you don't really, you think, how did I ever get on with these people or however how did I ever survive in this situation? What was it that I was able to do? And often you think, well, have I changed or, is, or was it always like this? And I've yeah. developed and changed and moved on and that's why it all seems so alien now. So why wouldn't that concept occur anywhere else? Because it happens every day in normal life. That's it. It's a threatening thing to people to have to face the possibility that this could, basically, once you die, it's not like, all right, now time to fuck off in, with, you know, in the clouds with the harps. <laughs> yeah. Choose that best outfit because that's what you're going to be wandering around in. Yeah, exactly. You know, but the, I, I saw a great meme someone sent us. It was this, this uh, guy is dying and he goes, must get into Victorian clothes to fit in with other ghosts. <laughs> But uh, yeah, anyways, th this got, I mean, I guess it, it is deservedly heavy given the subject of the story, but uh, yeah, mm. it, it just, it makes you, makes, makes you wonder, makes you wonder at the consciousness of ghosts and, and, and the, the secret life of ghosts. Indeed. And so it is. Oh, that's another episode titled The Secret Life of Ghosts. We're getting a lot of these, Paul. They're flowing tonight. The Attic. Most of the places I've lived in my life have had something unusual going on. I don't know if it's something about me that causes the activity or if I just have the worst luck when it comes to apartments, but either way, every new spot has its own mojo. Mostly these places are harmless, but every now and then I'd end up somewhere that wasn't, and those experiences keep me up at night. The most unpleasant, powerful place I ever lived was a two-story brick house at the far end of a dead-end street. We moved in in the spring of 2001 and moved out a little over a year later. The house had been built in the 20s and converted into two apartments, upstairs and downstairs, sometime in the 80s. 
There was technically a third level, but it was attic space and functionally useless. More on that later. My boyfriend Jared and I lived on the second floor, and for the first couple weeks everything seemed fine. The vibe of the apartment was maybe off a little, but as someone who's moved a lot, I know that sometimes you just need to settle before a place feels like home. The difference here was that the apartment, a reasonably sized two-bedroom, didn't improve with time. If anything, it felt more oppressive and less like home. When the lights were off at night, the shadows felt heavier and darker than they should be, as if they were hiding something. As it turned out, it wasn't just the shadows I needed to worry about. Even though it was the loudest thing that happened, the banging was probably the least frightening of all the things I experienced there. The first time happened around 10 at night. Jared and I had a couple friends over playing Mario Kart 64, and in the middle of a lap around DK's Jungle Parkway, we heard someone pounding on the locked downstairs front door. It was a rough, aggressive sound, so the two boys decided they would go down there and see what was up. Except by the time they got down the stairs, whoever it was had gone. The second time was around 5 in the morning. Jared and I had pulled an all-nighter playing Ocarina of Time, and were settling in to finally get some sleep when the pounding happened again. We quickly decided that again Jared would run downstairs to try and catch whoever it was, while I would keep watch from the window to see if they ran away. The rising sun provided more than enough light, yet no one emerged from the awning in front of the house, and when Jared came back upstairs, he said that yet again he hadn't seen anyone. Another night, Jared and I were watching a video when we heard a crashing sound outside the door to our place. When he tried to open the door to check it out, it wouldn't budge no matter what he did, and finally he had to use the back stairs to get out. It turned out that the stack of book boxes we'd had out on the landing next to our door, a stack that was orderly and stable and had been that way for weeks, had somehow moved closer to our door, fallen over, and wedged it shut. We had no explanation and all we could do was repack the boxes and replace them on the landing. They didn't move again until we moved out. There was other small stuff, and I may as well get that out of the way before I get to the things which finally chased us out of there. You'd put something down in a particular spot and seconds later it would be gone, never to be seen again. Didn't matter what it was, it would just up and vanish. Things that didn't vanish would often break. Appliances, for example. I kept track, and over the course of the year we were there, around 30 different things, old and new, either stopped working or straight up fell apart while we lived in the house at the end of the street. Finally, last among the small stuff, though it didn't feel small at the time, was the glaring in the living room. You never saw anyone, of course, but whenever you were in there, or passed through there, especially at night, it felt as if someone was sitting on the couch staring at you intently. It was not a kind feeling. You remember me mentioning the attic? It was your typical old house attic, so only the center part of the space was usable, and the rest was just insulation. Step on it and you fall through to the second floor. We only ever bothered to go up there the once, finding an old trunk at one end and pictures of trains taped to the walls. Nothing worth going back for. But then that night, and for the next couple nights after, I woke up from bad dreams with the strangest thought. The attic is giving me nightmares. From that point on, those nightmares would return every few days, as would the headaches. Great, almost 
blinding migraines that would lay me up in the dark with a cold cloth on my head for the best part of a day. On those days, I would be talking to Jared and find myself saying things like, The attic is coming down here and giving me headaches. I couldn't tell you why I would say something like that. It would just pop into my head. Sometimes you could even smell the attic downstairs, like it was a person with a particularly old, musty cologne. Even considering everything above, the most frightening thing that happened in our apartment had to be the scratching. Back then, Jared and I had two cats, Meanders, who we also called Meanie, and Bison, or B. When Jared worked night shift, they would usually keep me company, sleeping at the foot of my bed. One night, I was up late reading, with Meanie curled around my legs, when I heard scratching at the bedroom door. Not a problem, of course, I figured it was Bison being a little weirdo. Usually he meows when he wants in, but eh, who can figure cats, right? I was pretty comfortable, so I put off getting up for a few more minutes. I figured if he wanted in, he'd keep scratching. A minute later, the scratching came back, slow and purposeful, so I got up and walked over to the door. It took me all of five seconds to do that, yet when I opened up to let Bison in, there was no cat there. The hairs on the back of my neck stood up then, and I strained my vision looking out into the dark, first to the living room, and then the kitchen, finally seeing B curled up on the kitchen table. I went to check on her, and she was out cold. No way she could have crossed the distance between my door and the kitchen, then fallen fast asleep in the time it took me to open my bedroom door. Cats are fast, man, but they're not that fast. The rest of that night was spent with the lights on, and we started looking for a new place the following day. It's just a very weird combination of things that, that's mentioned in that story there, because the, the fact that they give the attic presence as if it can move around is, is a very interesting take on what was going on and how it was making them feeling. Oh, yeah. It's almost like there was something up there that they disturbed. Mm. Because obviously we, we talk about this idea that things nest in empty places. Things we cannot see nest in empty places. Yeah. And then when you disturb them, depending on the nature of the thing, maybe they get annoyed. Mm. You know, which, is, which is not to say all these things are evil, but that, you know, you come wandering into my lounge, I, I might wonder who the hell you are and where you're from. Yes. As if the veil, you've crossed over the veil again, as we were touching on earlier on about, are you haunting them or are they haunting you? Yeah. Or like, in the Guiana story, mm. you know, that they, they would stay inside to avoid detection. Mm. But um, once you had been spotted by one of these things, they yeah. could find you wherever you were. Yeah. The connection had been made. My old apartment, man, that place, I, I know I've talked about that on the show a long time ago, and it's, it's in my book, A Strange Little Place. Where can you get that from? Everywhere. Oh, Fine good. books are sold. But especially on Audible. <laughs> I get a much bigger cut of that one. Go Audible. I will say, though, actually two things with the book. Recently, I finally crossed 5,000 total copies sold. Oh, fantastic. But a big part of that happened because the book was Audible's Daily Deal a little while back. What was fascinating about that, though, is I sold almost 1,000 copies in a day. Actually, I think I did sell 1,000 copies in a day. Mm. And so I was like, okay, so I, I kind of had, I, I have sort of a rough math I can do to, to estimate the check I'm going to be getting based on the number of copies I've sold in a month. Yeah, yeah. Because there are different categories of copy, you know, depending on how people buy it. Yeah. So I, I kind of ran the calculus relative to numbers sold, and I was like, oh, shit, I'm, 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 I'm going to do pretty well this month. Thank God, because I, I need the money. Yeah, condo in Tahiti. And, 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I, okay. I can have like some Capri Suns. Oh. But I went from conduit to heating money, which I was <laughs> estimating about, say, 3500 to $4,000 US. That was my estimate. It was a quarter of that when I finally got the check because they have different math for when your book is the daily deal. Yeah. And yeah. so, again, I still got 1600 bucks Canadian, which, you know, you can't stick, shake a stick at that. It paid off the, this, this credit card that my old business partner had had mm-hmm. in my name. Uh, it finally, that, that's why I was finally able to pay that off. Yeah. So that's something, you know, but, um, yeah, it was not the, it was not the panacea, which had been, uh, had been hoped for. And I tell you, man, you think by this point I would have learned not to count my chickens before they hatch, but I have not. <laughs> Do any of us. I like to think someone out there is learning, Paul. It just yeah. ain't me. The Wisconsin Horror from Emma. My apartment building in Wisconsin has two front entrances to the entire building, and each door leads to six apartments. There's a creepy-ass basement that links the two pods of six apartments underground. Because of the area of the city I live in, all of my neighbours are senior citizens, and for most, it will be the last place they live. It's rare for me to run into anyone at all in the hallways or basement, which is pretty sweet, but about two weeks after I moved in, I started having some strange experiences. I have a two-bedroom apartment, and my second bedroom has a similar feeling that I heard Brandon mention about a room that he just couldn't make be anything. I use it for working out and storage. I don't really feel comfortable in there. A few weeks after I had moved in, whenever I would go into this room, something would be out of place and lying on the ground. Mind you, I do have two cats and a bunny. But this door is shut at all times because some of the cords that would quickly become cat bunny treats. All of the items in the room are neatly lined and organised around the walls so that the main space of the floor is open for working out. But I would sometimes walk in and lying there would be a weight, then my container of D&D dice and other things. I just put it back into its place and went about my day. Eventually, this happened for long enough that I had convinced myself that someone must be coming into my apartment, or lived in my walls, a phenomenon that will haunt you if you research it, if you don't know about it already. This was made worse when I found the creepiest little crawl space in my bathroom closet. I had never noticed it before, but a few weeks living here, I saw the little door to it was ajar. It's really too small for a person to fit into, but I'm not sure how it came to be open. I closed it, and set a heavy jug in front of it and went on with my life. Sometimes, I still find that jug moved and the door open. Here, I will admit, I'm also a highly paranoid person. I triple check that all my locks are locked every night. I strategically hang things on my walls so I can see around corners and play through scenarios in my head of where I can hide if somebody forcefully enters my home. So, every night, I would make sure that my door handle lock and my deadbolt were locked. The second week I lived here, I started waking up, and the door handle lock was unlocked. At first, I decided I had forgotten to lock it. After the third morning to find it unlocked, I literally made a checklist to check off that I had locked both of the locks on my front door. But still, I woke up to find it unlocked. Feeling like I was just being toyed with, I just couldn't sleep. The next night, 
I stayed up late watching some anime, and about 2.30am, started to hear my front doorknob turning, and my door shook naturally with the movement. I jumped off the couch. The turning continued, turning faster, and then I heard a pop. The door handle lock popped into the unlocked position. I crept to my kitchen to get a knife, and then back to my front door. I stayed behind a corner so I wouldn't make any shadows. Something in my mind told me not to go near the door. The turning got slower and slower until it finally stopped. If I didn't know it was impossible, I'd say I was holding my breath for an hour, just standing there in shock. And finally, at some point, I relocked that handle and went to bed. The next day, it was still locked, but after that, it would continue to come unlocked. I did, as rationalist people tend to do, try to explain this by considering maybe it was one of my neighbours, but this just seemed unlikely to me, as many were bedbound or couldn't even make it up my stairs. I still won't say it's impossible, but considering other events that have taken place, I think I'll dive into the deep end of the woo-woo and say it wasn't an alive person. This went on for almost four weeks, and after that, I've only had one more incident. I had lived here for over a year, when again, I was up late at night, and the door handle rattled. This time, I bolted to the door, and held the lock in the locked position. It was hard, and my hand slipped off a few times as it moved, but I managed to keep it locked. I still didn't feel safe to look out the people, but I did feel some sense of control. After the doorknob thing seemed to stop, I had some peace for about a week. I thought, okay, the spirits here have accepted me, after throwing a tantrum over me intruding into their space. But then, one day I was cleaning up some art supplies in my second bedroom closet, when the door, which was an arm's length away, slammed back in my face. I was in shock. It's Wisconsin. My windows weren't open. I don't have vents that blow air or anything like that. It reminded me of trying to walk into a sibling's room when they were angry, only to have it slam back in my face. I had to ground myself to reality and remember who I was to realise that this shouldn't have happened and I needed to deal with it. So I knocked on the door and said I'm coming in and entered with no problem. I went to the double doors of the closet, opened it and put away my art supplies. I closed the doors, heard the doors click shut and as my hands left those doorknobs, the doors flew open. My hair tickled my neck in the whoosh of air. I simply said aloud, No, these doors stay shut. And I shut the doors, heard them click again, and they stayed shut, and I haven't had issues with them again. Of course though, after this point, I did a do-it-yourself saging of my apartment. I got some white sage, and just walked around spreading the smoke, and saying things like, if you have ill intentions, you are not welcome here, and you need to leave. If you have no bad intentions towards me or my pets, you may stay, but please stop scaring me. I have to live here. That was the only time I've done that, and since then, some shadow people and other energies have passed through, but never stayed for long. The real issue with this place resides in the basement. And on that cliffhanger, we're going to leave it because Emma actually sent uh, even more stuff, even more stories. And we're going to share those on the next show, mm. I think, because um, there's some really, really creepy stuff in there. Thank you so much for sharing that, Emma. 
it's very unsettling. I think doorknobs turning uh, are, are quite an unsettling thing anyway, especially when you're on your own and you can see it just turning ever so slightly. That's because you know now that someone who doesn't belong in there has committed to the idea of being in there mm. regardless of consequences. And that is a scary goddamn thought. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, there's a whole world of, of spooky things from Emma's story there because there's a lot of things to unpack. There's a lot going off. Well, there is one thing in there that kind of reminded me of something. I think it was Sarah put into the, the, our, um, our group chat. And it was that TikTok about the young girl who felt a draft in her bathroom mm. and then determined that behind her mirror was an entire other apartment yeah. that was vacant. <laughs> like, that's a plot to fucking Candyman. <laughs> I mean, people living in other people's houses is, is one of those weird things. Occasionally, you'll get a story turn up. And I saw one recently about a woman, I think, who lived in South Carolina. Um, okay. Who discovered that her ex-boyfriend, who'd just been released from jail, was living in her attic. Jesus. I had my own little brief moment on the nightmare train a couple weeks ago. Mm. Uh, and it was actually a bathroom draft thing. I, yeah. was, I was in the bathroom. It was late at night. And because Nick is perpetually cold, we, we've got the heat. And we don't pay for our own heat. Uh, we've got the heat up, you know, uh, mm. quite high in here. So I was in the bathroom. I think I was brushing my teeth. And I felt this cold breeze. And I thought, Jesus, where, where'd that come from? That was, mm. that was creepy. And I realized it's coming from under the sink. So I, I got down on my knees. I opened the sink. And, and now bear in mind, I, you know, I take shit in and out of it all the time. But never do I actually sit down square in front of it and look forward. Mm. So I did that. And I understand that every bathroom has a hole where the pipes have to pass through to get into like the, the, the back of the place. But I don't think it has to be big enough to hide Steve McQueen. <laughs> I expected to see Andy Dufresne crawling past on his way to freedom. It, it was, it's enormous. No wonder the fucking spiders and mice are getting in here. They give me shit for leaving my window open sometimes. And you've got the great channel down there for rodents. Like, give me a break, guys. I mentioned that to the landlord because we have a mice infestation in our building right now. We've actually been pretty lucky here. Uh, and it's not because of our cats. Our cats are quite lazy. But we just have avoided it. And mm -hmm. they, they put up the sign saying, hey, if you have any holes under, underneath your sinks where the pipes are, here's some free steel wool and tape to plug it up. Hmm. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. Um, I'm going to need an entire steel sheep to <laughs> shove underneath there because this thing is about the size of a human child. And I said, is that normal? And the woman goes, oh, yeah, it's fine. Is it though? Is it really? Because not only can mice get through there, but every single one of the Ninja Turtles could march through there standing and then drive the pizza van through. <laughs> well, that um, spooky house that we grew up in, um, with the grave in the garden and all that, in, right. in the bathroom, or the toilet, because the toilet was separate from the bathroom, there was a, there was a, a door halfway up the wall. Oh? Huh? Yeah. And obviously, after everything started going on, we thought, oh, well, my parents and, 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 and I'm trying to think, there was about six of them, <laughs> all these adults, went <laughs> to, to see. So they got a stepladder because you needed a, a, a little ladder just to get up to this door because it was about four foot up okay. the wall. So you couldn't, get, you couldn't step into it off the floor. Right. So they opened it up and behind it was another little staircase um, that led up to a bedroom. Oh. 
and there was a single bed in there and a little table and a candle stand. A bunch of buckets of fish heads. (laughs) And it was just an an abandoned bedroom that we didn't even realize was there. Someone was living their own little miniature version of Castle Freak. (laughs) So clearly nobody had been in there for ages because the dust was so thick. Right, on the, right, on the right. bedding, and the, but it still had bedding on it and a pillow and all, all sorts. So weird. And I, I don't. It's one of them where you think, well, who on earth lived here, and how did they get out? Did they get out? Is another question. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. Better start googling statute of limitations for disturbing crime scenes. <laughs> so um, yeah, weird, weird rooms and secret compartments are always interesting. Well, Emma, we're glad that the shadow people have stopped harassing you, uh, that you do not have any Ninja Turtles or Steve McQueens <laughs> crawling through your bathroom. And uh, again, we can't wait to share the second half of your email because, again, there is some wonderfully creepy stuff in there. And, and again, we can only enjoy it now because you are safely out of it. Otherwise, again, we would not, not revel in someone's distress. That is, I mean, we're jerks, but we're not those kind of jerks. The Brunei Skeleton in Brunei Dar es Salaam, our capital city is Bandar Seri Begawan, and it is home to more than half of all people in the country. The Yayasan shopping complex is located in downtown Bandar, next to where the Kadayan River splits from the Brunei, and to most people it is simply a place where they go to shop and have meals. For me, it will forever be the place where the skeleton caught my leg. I have an issue where I cannot go to a public washroom alone. Some of my friends are understanding, but... Generally speaking, I try to go before leaving home so it doesn't become an issue. This started when I was 12, and my family had brought me to Yayasan to, yes, shop and have a meal. We needed some new clothes, and so spent a great deal of time in that section looking for just the right thing. I needed to use the toilet, and so my mother brought me to the bathrooms in that section. Back then, I had no problem using the bathroom alone in a public place, so I went inside. The interior of the bathroom was run down, dimly lit and quiet. As I stared at myself in the grimy, streaked mirror, I felt as if I was the only person in the world. It was a relief when my mother followed me in shortly afterward. There were three stalls. My mother used the first, and I used the last, leaving one between us. She finished before me, and I heard her leave, and a moment later someone came crashing into the stall next to me. Even with the noise, I didn't feel any need for concern, I just assumed that person really had to go. But a moment later, as I was standing to leave the stall, something grabbed my right ankle. The sight I saw when I looked down will haunt me until my final day. A long, coal-black skeletal hand had me in a grip so tight it was almost painful. In the moment, it had happened so fast I couldn't fully grasp the situation, So I just tried repeatedly to pull my leg away as if it were some minor annoyance, but the hand wouldn't let go. Finally, it just disappeared. As I ran from the bathroom, I saw that the door to the next stall was hanging open, and there was no one inside. It wasn't until we finally got home that I told my mother what had happened, and of course she didn't believe me. But over the years, I have heard other people talk about strange things happening in the Yayasan shopping complex, and even that particular washroom. I've been back in there as an adult, and it's been completely renovated. It no longer feels dirty and quiet, but is now bright and fresh. Even so, I never stayed around long enough to find out if the spirits had been driven away as well. Before we comment on the story itself, I actually found another story about a black skeleton. When we talk about it, I'll explain why this was interesting to me, but this was a dream someone had, 
And, and I, I, again, I felt it was relevant, so I'm going to share it here. This person says, the dream started off so normal, I could have been awake. In it, I had woken up just after going to bed at 2 a.m. My girlfriend was also awake, and we were talking as we normally would. I got up to use the bathroom, and when I came back, she got up to go. As she passed me, I turned to put my hand on her shoulder, and when we touched, she turned around and dissolved into this smooth, jet-black skeletal demon thing. As that happened, the entire room started falling apart around me. At the time, I remember feeling terrified, like I was standing next to pure evil, something that could end everything with a snap of its fingers. It seemed so cold and alien and huge, even though its physical size was only 5'6 or so. I'm 6'6", and when I saw that thing, I felt like an ant. I woke up and went to wake up my sleeping girlfriend because I needed to speak to someone, and instead of her, it was the thing again. I was still dreaming. Finally, I actually woke up into the real world, screaming my head off, waking my girlfriend up. The reason that I was interested enough to seek that out was, one, it's so anomalous that... I don't think we've ever had a story of a black skeleton on the show before. And two, I have also dreamed of the black skeleton. This is maybe 10, 15 years ago. But I had a dream, and in it, this black skeleton with, I think, maybe a shield and a sword, but I could be wrong, it rose out of my body, screaming. And that's, that's all I remember. You know, there, there's nothing particularly interesting there. But the fact that it turned up and, and then turned up here really, really caught my attention. Dreaming itself is, is strange, but to have dreams that are interlinked, that you are not aware of, and you're under the mis, misillusion that you are awake, but the dream hasn't finished with you yet, I've always found peculiar. And obviously, while I have this conversation with you, I have two skulls on my desk. One is black and one is white, <laughs> staring at me as we talk. But that's just the kind of person I am as well. No, that's why you're hosting the show. <laughs> Far, far away. When most people think of New Jersey, they think of cities. Trenton, Newark, Jersey City. And while we have plenty of those, almost 42% of the state is considered to be forested in one way or another. Burlington County, where I grew up, and where the story I'm about to tell you takes place, has some particularly wild and remote spots, especially towards its southeast end by Wharton, and Bass River State Forest. At 16 years old, I got my first car, and my enthusiasm was unshakable. My first car, which I worked endlessly at our local multiplex to play for, was a total piece of crap. A 1988 Pontiac Tempest. And even that couldn't keep me from joyously cruising the open road at night with my friends. We didn't spend much time in the cities, neither Trenton nor Levertown, are the kind of places you want to hang out at night, even if you're on the move, and instead spent time on the back roads and rural routes. Being kids, we were into all kinds of creepy stuff, horror movies, ghost stories, all that. And the one thing Burlington County had going for it is that you didn't have to go far to find the latter. The ghost of a Hessian soldier is supposed to haunt Mill Race Village up off the turnpike. Hezekiah Smith is still said to be hanging around the Smithville mansion, his former home, and those are just two of the strange stories you'll hear in the area. The reason I bring this up 
is so that when I tell you my own story, you'll understand it's not at all the kind of thing we were looking for. Transparent dead men drifting across the road, sure, but what we experienced, I wouldn't have expected it in a million years. Among our regular roads was Rural Route 539, which runs from New Canton down to Tuckerton, passing through parts of the Bass River Forest. One night, we were on a stretch of 539, nearer to Bass River, when we spotted something that didn't make much sense at all. As I've mentioned, that's all rural road, and there's not much in the way of development out there, which means there's very little artificial light. At most, you'll catch a porch light from one of the few houses dispersed out there. That's why we took notice when, on a patch of road that should have been nothing but darkened forest, we saw what appeared to be the lights of an entire town shining through the trees. The lights were set far back into the wood, like the town was still some distance away, but even at a distance, we should have noticed this town at some point before. We considered going to check out which town it was, but there was no obvious way to get there and it was coming up close on curfew, so the four of us agreed to come back the next night before the sun set. This way, we figured, we would be able to get a good look at the town and figure out which one it was. The next night I rounded up the others and we sped south to find our little Brigadoon. Back then, there was no Google Maps and we didn't have GPS, so we couldn't pinpoint exactly where we had been the night before, but we had a rough idea based on mileage. In the fading daylight, where that town had been the night before, there appeared to be only trees. In case we had screwed up the location, we spent the rest of the night and many others driving back and forth up 539, looking in vain. We only saw it once more, on one of our last rides before adulthood came crashing down and I enlisted in the military. On the same stretch of 539, we'd by now driven hundreds of times, enough that we'd almost forgotten about the place completely. We passed the lights of that faraway phantom city, burning bright like a fire at the end of the world. It's not on any map, and I suppose you could only see it when it wants to be seen, but should you ever find yourself in Burlington County, New Jersey, stay sharp. Maybe you'll find a way there. I never could. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with our Ghost Force shoutouts. Before you reach for that skip 15 seconds ahead button, I promise you this isn't an ad. We wanted to take a minute to talk to you about mental health. On this show, I've always tried to be as honest and open as possible about my struggles with depression and anxiety, because even though we've come a long way towards acknowledging the very real damage these things can do, there is still way too much lingering stigma about reaching out for help. And when you start to feel like there's no help, it's easy to start feeling like there's no hope. But Paul has joined me today to remind you there is always hope and there's always help. 
We're not going to try and talk you out of self-harming right now, because we know that's not how it works. Instead, what we wanted to do was tell you something now, and hope that should things get bad, you'll remember it and make a phone call or send a text message before you make any permanent decisions. As someone who knows all too well just how important mental health can be, it's never too late to reach out. In Canada, the number to call is 133-456-4566. In the USA, the number to call is 1-800-273-8255. In the UK, the number to call is 116-123 or text SHOUT, that's S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. In Australia, the number to call is 131114. However bad shit seems, it will pass. And no matter what your brain might be telling you at any given moment, and believe me when I say I know this intimately, there are people who love you and people who care deeply about how you treat yourself. Should a time come when you find yourself despairing, please know that we've both been where you are and there is a way back to the world. Take care. Welcome back. Thanks, of course, to the rest of the team, Luke Greensmith, Anthony Germain, and Sarah Kant for everything they do to make all this possible. Uh, Anthony's actually going to be in town at the end of the month, and he has had his first vaccine, so I'm excited to see him. Thank you to those folks, and thank you to you, my friend, for keeping me company this last four hours. That's right, folks, four hours. <laughs> my pleasure. There is probably about ooh, 90 minutes of uh, unrelated talk that our patrons get access to, actually. We, I think the last, the last show we did, there was a 45-minute bonus episode of just <laughs> you and me talking about other things. Yeah, yeah. Usually uh, music, trivia, and uh, geekiness. Yes. So if you like those things, <laughs> patreon.com slash ghost story, guys. <laughs> uh, so what do you got coming up over on Mysteries and Monsters, Paul? Oh, I've got some good ones coming up. So uh, currently, uh, as this episode will land, I will be discussing all things Nessie with Ken Gerhardt, and we also dive into Champ. So it's a good lake monster oh, cool. episode. The following week, I've got one of my favorite Fortean conundrums, which is the Van Meter monster, which was an incident that happened in 1903 uh, in the oh, town wow. of Van Meter in Iowa. Uh, and I have Chad Lewis talking to me about a very weird week at the end of September and October of that year and an increasingly peculiar creature's behavior. Oh, I can't wait because Chad, Chad's a really interesting guy. Yeah, yeah, it's Chad's third appearance because we did the big muddy monster as well the other week. Um, so Chad shows are always popular. Um, and I've just recorded a couple of shows recently. I've got David Weatherly's coming back and we've got the Australian legend Tony Healy returning for a triumphant return. Fantastic. Well, make sure to check it out, folks. That's Mysteries and Monsters, wherever you get your podcasts. And where can people find you on social media, Paul? Uh, you can find us just by looking for Mysteries and Monsters across all social media platforms. And the website as well is mysteriesandmonsters.com. Brilliant. Well, thank you again, my friend. My pleasure, as always, for keeping you, well, not keeping you up late anyway, keeping you, up until the, <laughs> keeping you, keeping you around until the mid-afternoon. Thank you. All right, so I promised you patron information. If you head on over to patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys, you can have a look at all the bonus stuff our patrons get. They include not only early access to main episodes, 
but bonus material cut from the main shows. You also get access to the Sunken Library, which is an entirely separate paranormal podcast that I host. And that is where we explore subjects which don't quite fit the first person narrative of the main show, but are always, always fascinating. Sometimes I even have guests, which can be a lot of fun. You also get a full length music show where I play all the best in the last 30 days of independent music, and there's nothing at all spooky about that. It's just really an excuse for me to buy cool music, play it for whoever is interested enough to listen, and sometimes talk to really fascinating people about either their podcasts or the music they create. It is my little pet project, and it's something that I now share with patrons. There's all kinds of other stuff too, from our monthly movie night to stickers and postcards and digital downloads of fantastic music. It's all over at patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. That's patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. And folks, this is how I make my living. Even a dollar a month makes a difference and I is very much appreciated. In fact, one of the perks of joining our Ghost Force tier is you get to hear your shout out every two weeks here on this show. And with that, it's time for our Ghost Force shoutouts. Patrons who support us at the $20 level, you are part of an elite club. You're the brave. You're the proud. You are Ghost Force. That's right. Every second episode, patrons at the $20 level and above, those esteemed members of Ghost Force, will be thanked here. In this voice, whatever it is, I'm not entirely sure. This time around, they are Atham Saragon, Alyssa Capilla, Amanda Strong, Anne Ramey, Ashley Marsha, Charlotte Clary, Christopher Kunes, Dan Garrity, Danielle Harris, Eric Abel, Hannah Brown, Holland Connor, Ian Harrison, Jackie McFarland, Jeanette Patterson, Jean Cupertino, Jennifer Petty, Julia Lugubrius, Just Julie, Jenna Blackwelder, Karen, Kimberly Hansen, Lumpy Rug, Mark Semler, Mary Rose WW, Noel Jim, Rebecca Cloutier, Rhonda Sheen, Richard Easby. Truly, you are fearless explorers of the night, and for that, I salute you. Hats off to you, Ghost Force. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you. And again, if you want to join the team, patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. If you want to get in touch, send us a story or a comment. Ghoststoryguys at gmail.com is a way to do it. We're also on Instagram at instagram.com slash theghoststoryguys, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok as ghoststoryguys. If you want to reach me personally, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at LargelyTheTruth. If you want to pick up merch, exclusive stickers, art postcards, my night photography, and all kinds of other cool stuff, check out our website at ghoststoryguys.com, and there you'll find links to our Public, Redbubble, and Big Cartel stores. And from there, you can find all manner of cool Ghost Story Guys gear. Don't forget to leave a five-star review anywhere you can. I certainly appreciate it. And if you like the show, make sure to tell your friends, because there's nothing quite like a personal recommendation. Our theme song, Radio, Into the Darkness We Go, is composed and performed by Peter of Pizzanta Music. Find more from him by searching for Pizzanta Music wherever you get your tunes. His latest album, 1989, is available on streaming platforms everywhere. Our story's theme is, of course, The Future Belongs to Them Now, by Hexagram. 
Find more from them by searching for Hexagram wherever you stream your music. And again, that's Hexagram with two X's, not three. And that's going to do it. Paul and I will be back in two weeks with another show. And until then, into the darkness we go. dive in and, and and throw throw some things around sounds good and i i have been spending time in graveyards so we can talk about that what legally well let's not ask too many questions here paul instead of going clunk yes i will keep gently reminding you <laughs> like that yeah there you did, did you go see i didn't even know boo ah <laughs> so last week Just... i fell asleep on on the air so it's your turn now <laughs> Come back into the light, Caroline. <laughs> this house is clean. <laughs> I've worked in offices long enough in my boring day jobs over the years to come across some very strange people. Um, I remember one gentleman was sacked after he was caught on camera going around the office late at night sniffing seats. So, yeah. Wait, so they have cameras in offices? Okay, well, there's a, maybe I understand why I got... <laughs> now, now I know why I got fired from stuff. <laughs> yeah oh i could tell you some stories but you never know who's listening yeah off air off air yeah we'll patreon.com slash ghost story guys <laughs> yeah your patreon yeah <laughs> pay, pay my libel bill please very strange probably just a succubus well bring it on <laughs> i've had far uglier people try and you know <laughs> suck the life out of me so <laughs> Well, the only thing online dating taught me was that I was going to end up in a monastery. Oh, no. And then again, my friend, who kind of explained some of the world to me, demystified the world, you might say. Yeah. She's like, uh, yeah, that was a fucking date, you idiot. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Somebody pointed out that um, uh, three of my ex-girlfriends have all moved abroad, or at least that's where I've told people. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> no, they are. They're, they're on Facebook. I can prove it. Oh, sure. <laughs> Paul, you seem to know a lot about green screen technology. What's up with that? <laughs> I mean, I know he sent me pictures of fruit bats, which are a, a singular horror. Oh, I think they're wonderfully beautiful. Oh, yeah, they're great until they're flying above your head. <laughs> no, yeah. you just did number three, the attic, didn't you? You're absolutely right. I'm going to mute myself now, Paul. <laughs> I was like, fuck, that actually sounded really good. Oh, no. Okay. Sorry. I'll, no, no, no. I'm just going to go fuck myself. That's good. That's fine. I had to grind. Oh, crap. <laughs> it begins. <laughs> Hang on here. What's, what are two complimentary things? Jam, biscuits. What's two things? Tea and biscuits. Oh, Coffee and cream. All that involves insertion, and I just think, mm, maybe not those metaphors. Yes. That's, that's not Telly Savalas energy. <laughs> What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.